This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 93 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. That's Jeff Welpley. How's it going, everyone? Going you know, right. Chuck, if you wanted to make it sound like there was a 10 more people, you could, like, introduce random people and I'll make other voices. Oh, there we go. <laughs> on this week's panel, we have Yoda and BB-8. <sighs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can do a BB-8 sound. <laughs> So, uh, Jeff, we got you on to talk about your ng-conf talk, Angular Universal Patterns. Can you kind of give us a brief overview? I know we talked about Angular Universal uh, a few months ago, but can you give us kind of the 10,000-foot view on that, and then we'll talk about some of the patterns? Sure. So first, let me start about telling what Angular Universal is, and then I can get into what the patterns are. For people that don't know, Angular Universal is the way in which you can render your Angular 2 app on the server. We have a library that if you built your Angular 2 app, you basically add this library with a couple lines of code, you can basically render on the server. And the reason why you would want to do that is if you have a consumer-facing application and you are concerned about things like SEO or the initial page load time, then this can be extremely helpful. But the focus of my talk is actually going to be on the patterns and best practices for the real-world apps that Patrick Stapleton and I, the, Patrick and I have been the ones working on Angular Universal, and we've just run into all sorts of problems, you know, or challenges rather, in building real-world apps. And then, so this talk is focused on those patterns and best practices that we've started to develop in order to get around those common problems that pretty much everyone is going to face. Gotcha. Now, I, I think I remember right. Last time you said that you had the Angular Universal stuff running or mostly running on Express or some other Node.js framework. Is is that still the case? Are there other instances out there where people are using uh, Angular Universal with something else? Yeah, it's a good question. So we, we are primarily focused on a Node.js backend. That's like the core of what we start building on. But we've started to expand out to a number of different backends. The best one so far, or the most advanced, 
is for .NET. Uh, so Steve Standerson, who is the creator of Knockout.js and is now working on the Visual Studio team and, and doing a lot of work with Angular 2 and integrating that into the new Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code, he's basically created an adapter with Angular Universal to .NET. So you can be running a your .NET backend you know, on the web server and it uses a um, .NET to uh, JavaScript bridge in order to talk to Angular Universal to do the server rendering and then you know, obviously have your client-side uh, Angular 2 app as well. So that's a pretty cool implementation that he's done. And that's like already working. That's out there, something that you can use. But then we also have a number of other backends that are not as far, but are still in development for uh, PHP and Java. And then um, there's some other ones for like further down the road that we've talked about you know, for like things like Python. Again, those ones aren't nearly production ready. They're more like experimental, but they'll eventually get there. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm curious then, as you start to pull in Universal, and it, it makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of, you know, having something that's maybe a little bit more static or completely rendered by the back end. And we've talked about that, like I said, in the previous episodes. But what are the drawbacks? What are the things that just don't work or don't work well yet? What, you know, what are the gotchas that you're finding that you have to work through or work around? You know, this is actually a perfect segue into my talk because uh, that's what it's all based on. You know, when, when you start building with Angular Universal, you know, you have a lot of benefit, when you, especially when you are building a consumer-facing app and you want to get, you know, those SEO benefits and, and the initial page load benefits. But in order to do that, you do run into some issues. So Patrick and I identified kind of six problem areas or challenge areas, rather. And for each one of these, there's things that you can do that you should do to mitigate them. Um, but it, it, you don't necessarily, there are like easier ways and then more advanced stuff. Uh, so just as I'm not going to go, I can get through all six, but like, let me just take one as an example. So async is an example that on the client, when you're building a application within the browser, async isn't that big of a deal because you could have, you know, 10 different uh, async operations occurring at the same time. That's what the browser is built for. And they can all resolve independently. They don't have to be coordinated. On the server, that's not the case. On the server, you have a request that goes to your web server for a URL, and the web server has to return something at some point. So in your code, in your application code, if you have all these disparate async pieces of code, how do you know when to return a response? That's not something that's like kind of obvious at first when you start doing this, but it can be a big problem and it's a challenge that other server rendering frameworks you know, struggle with. The great thing about Angular 2 is that there is an awesome, awesome solution for this because of zones. So zones, if you don't know, is a sort of lower level library that was built you know, with Angular 2 that basically wraps all async calls and you can do a ton of different things with that to track them or, or um, perform certain operations. For our purposes, what we did is we used the power of zones to basically keep track of all the async calls within your app. So we know the Angular Universal Library knows what async calls are going on at any given time, and, they, and it knows when they've all been resolved. So you can basically set up something where 
the library, you don't have to add any extra code to coordinate all your async events. You just keep them disparate like you normally would on the client side and let like our custom piece that's built on top of zones keep track of everything and then it responds back to the user whenever all that has resolved. Does that give you a good sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I, I mean, just, just the way I think about my Angular apps, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that really doesn't apply on the back end. So, yeah, having something that manages that for you and makes it so that it's, it's what's the word I'm looking for? Trackable? Traceable? There's something keeping track of those asynchronous calls and making sure that everything happens in the order and in the way that it's supposed to. That I, I really do like that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And, you know, obviously we built some custom code within Angular Universal, but I have to give credit to the Angular team for the core zones library, which sort of enables this. I mean, I don't think people sort of appreciate how powerful and great the, the zones library is. Now, is that the solution to a lot of the other problems, the zones, or is the, or, you know, or does each problem have its own solution? Each problem has its own solution. Uh, so zones is a part of one of the other problems, but uh, another example is dependencies. So on the client side, you may reference certain things that are client-specific. This is a big problem, actually, that almost everybody who starts using Universal runs into this because you're so used to, in your client-side code, for example, referencing the window object and referencing you know, jQuery or referencing something that is specific to the browser. And you have to do something in order to abstract out those dependencies when you're running them, um, running that application on the server. So what do you do? For this particular problem, there's uh, four different patterns that Patrick and I are going to go over in our talk. But the most important one is what we're calling kind of DI swapping, which is not like a revolutionary idea, but it's like um, a thing that is particularly useful for Universal in running things in different contexts, both the web server and the browser. And so basically what that is, is that you build an abstract class that is the interface. Uh, and when I say abstract class in TypeScript, there's not really abstract classes. It's just a class that you just don't implement methods. So you use that as your interface. It's essentially no-opping all, all of those functions. And then you build implementations, two different implementations, one for the client and one for the server. So on the client side, for that, like a function, let's say it's you know show alert is the function, right? In the interface, that function would be empty. But in the implementation for the client side, it might have window.alert, you know, they call the window.alert function. On the server side, it doesn't really apply, so that particular thing can be kept as like a no-op. But there might be other things for like caching is one thing. On the, on the client side, you might use window.localcache. But on the server side, you would use something like Redis, let's say. So by using this approach where you build these abstract you know, class interfaces and you build against the interfaces, it makes uh, you know, it really easy to build these powerful applications that are not context-specific. And the really great thing about this approach is that it doesn't just apply to Angular Universal. There's all this stuff in Angular 2 now where you can run stuff other than the browser. So Electron, you know, native script, uh, web workers, all this other stuff where you're running your app in a different context. And so the thing I just described with DI swapping can apply to all of those. Yeah, I mean, we have dependency injection, right? Why not use it so that we can uh, get the behavior we want? Yep, definitely. 
it's interesting because, I mean, I guess if I had thought long and hard about it, I could have come up with one of these problems maybe, but I guess it didn't occur to me until, you know, you get in there and you try something and you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of broken here. We got to figure out a way around it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's the whole thing is that whenever you're designing something or, or something's not in production, you, you never have the full picture of what people are going to run into, you know? Uh, so once people are using it for real, then you have all these issues and then you start creating the solutions for those. I'm sure going to be more once as people, more and more people use Angular Universal, but we've already kind of, I think, encountered a lot of the common ones that we think most people will run into and come up with really good solutions for those. Yeah, it's amazing what people come up with that breaks. You know, it seems reasonable when they when you look at it, but yeah, you didn't think about it at the time, and so it breaks something. Yep. So I'd like to talk about the people that have been working on and getting this done. You mentioned yourself and Patrick Stapleton, right? I, have, I assume, obviously, you're also working in conjunction with the Angular team itself. So, like, who is all involved and, like, what are you, Patrick, been doing? How long have you been working on this? I'm interested in all that. That's a good question. You know, we started off, it was uh, Tobias, Tobias Bosch from the Angular core team, who was our primary liaison and advisor. And he was great. Yeah, he he is great. But (laughs) he is so valuable and important to the core team that uh, I guess it was just inevitable that as things are getting closer to the ultimate release of Angular 2, he's just getting pulled in like a million different directions. And I don't know if you guys keep track of the actual core library and kind of the major changes there, but Tobias is like a mad scientist. Like he goes crazy. Like there's internals within core that really only him and probably like Victor are like the only ones who like are brave enough to you know, change them. And Tobias will, won't even, ju- not just like make minor tweaks, he'll just like rip completely, complete huge sections out, totally rewrite it. I mean, it's just crazy the type of stuff he does, but it is, you know, hugely beneficial. One of the biggest things, just as like a quick aside, is uh, it's just on that note, is Tobias is working on this unbelievably complex and, and awesome change core where you'll be able to pre-compile your entire app into the set of artifacts. And what that does is it allows the Angular team to include just the bare minimum of core code, like the the size of the Angular core library is going to get reduced down in order of magnitude, and your code's going to run a lot faster because it doesn't have to like uh, actually run through a lot of different code. It, it just has everything kind of pre-generated. So that's just kind of an example of the type of stuff that Tobias is constantly working on. So once he started kind of going off in the deep end and a lot of that type of stuff, uh, Jeff Cross started working with Patrick and I a lot more. And Jeff is great as well. He is doing a lot of stuff combining different technologies uh, for Angular to uh, he's actually been working on the progressive web app uh, example that he's going to demo at ng-conf, and which kind of brings in a whole bunch of different things. It brings in Angular Universal, Service Worker, Web Worker, all these different stuff to show in his example. Uh, so he's been great to collaborate with and have as kind of this central point of, you know, not only very useful for uh, getting feedback on the stuff that we're working on, but then getting from him feedback from all these other areas and other projects within Angular 2 uh, and the different teams that are working on them. Uh, so that's been pretty awesome. And then outside of the core team, you asked about you know all the different people who are involved here. Uh, we also have a pretty good community of uh, people that contribute. So we have, 
I would say about a half a dozen regular contributors from the community. And we try to meet with them once a week on Fridays for our kind of community meeting to talk about you know, what the issues are and what needs to be done. And uh, they help with everything from, you know, uh, little documentation changes to, you know, uh, small and large uh, modifications to the library and, you know, building example apps, everything like that. So it's been great to, I mean, as you guys know, the Angular community is just really, really awesome, really strong. Uh, so it's, it's definitely been, if anything, uh, I think that Patrick and I haven't used them enough. That's one of the things that I talked with Patrick about of trying to push more to the community because they are willing and able and, and love to help out. Awesome. So one of the things that I keep looking at with Angular Universal is that it builds the layout on the back end and then puts it up, uh, or, you know, or serves it up basically, so it serves up fully formed HTML. I'm curious how that works with caching. I mean, that's that's one thing that I keep looking at and going, yeah, you know, if I could get it to render everything and then just cache it so that it's really blazing fast, it doesn't have to do all that calculation again. Are there any gotchas with that, or are there good uh, implementation patterns that we deal with there? Yeah, that's a good point, too. So we actually have a rudimentary way of doing that. The problem is we haven't enabled it by default. What you're describing, and just to kind of reiterate so that it's clear, is when you make a request to the server, obviously all the data has to be gathered at that point in order to render the page on the server. And then that's passed down, and then the client you know, re-renders part of that page. So it, it does, by default, right now, with Angular Universal, repull all of that data. So it makes the data, essentially the data calls twice. And from that sense, the time to get to where the client has fully taken over is longer than it would be if you were able to reuse that data. You can reuse that data. You can do that actually right now. But the problem with trying to enable that by default is that it doesn't actually yield benefits in all cases because what happens is you pull the data on the back end and what the way that you share the data is that you put it in the HTML of the payload for the, the server uh, page and depending it always depends on what your app is doing because sometimes the size of the data is so large that it actually slows down the initial download of the page so your initial uh, time to see the server rendered page slows down, even though the client rendering speeds up. So it's not necessarily a win every time. What we're trying to do is to add a flexible, configurable library, parts of the library where you can specify basically, okay, I know for the, my particular page that because the data set is small, this is totally fine. So you use that caching mechanism. And then for this other thing where it's like this huge data set, it's actually better to take a different approach. So awesome. what, what, what are some of these other gotchas that you run into with uh, Angular Universal that you've been able to solve? Yeah, I'd love to actually, uh, I, we had to cut, I mentioned six, right? Uh-huh. There's no way, we only have 20 minutes for this talk. Oh, wow. So there's, there's just like no way you could talk about all six. So we ended up doing, even though we're going to like throw them up on the screen, like these are the six you know, problem areas. We actually are only able to talk about three, like I in, blame in depth. Joe. I blame Joe. <laughs> no, no, I mean it, it's a good thing. I mean, like it keeps it tight. I, I actually don't mind that. But what we're going to do is we're going to publish afterwards details on the other three. But I, I'd love to like talk about you know, some of that. So actually, let me, let me just run through all six, 
And then I want to talk about the ones that aren't going to be in the talk, because I think some of those are interesting. Uh, so the six are, are gap events, which has to do with the preboot, and I can talk about that in a little bit. Async, like I mentioned, dependencies. And then the three ones we aren't going to talk about are session state, app container, and scalability. Uh, so, mm. uh, yeah, and I know <laughs> all of them are interesting. You know, session state, just to, to take that one, the problem there is that on the browser, when you're running an app, there's only one user. It's one user and it's a long session. But on the server, it's completely different. There's many different users for shorter sessions, or, or rather the uh, t lifetime of that request is shorter. So how do you, for example, you access a certain, like on the client, typically you'll have a service, let's say, that accesses some data, like a, the active user, for example. And on the client, in the browser, you typically have, it's essentially global, global state data. So you just get that and, and that's easy peasy. But on the server, that's kind of hard because if you have global data, then that's going to be globally accessible to all the different requests. And you don't necessarily want that. You want to isolate it to just the request that is uh, currently being accessed. No, it's okay. Now, Give me something I can blackmail Joe with. <laughs> the way that most server render server frameworks like Express handle this is that they use middleware, where you actually have to pass down the request object to all the different functions. So, like you're explicitly passing it down. But the problem with a client-side app like Angular is that we use dependency injection, so we don't actually have this like pass-down like callback uh, mechanism like middleware does, where you can pass down that request object everywhere. You have, sort of have to have it available. And so the way that we solve this problem is it gets into the inner workings of how um, both DI and the bootstrap process works. So with the Angular 2 bootstrap, that's where you're setting your dependencies for what you're using in your app. But in Universal, what we do is we actually have a multi-level bootstrap where there is a top-level bootstrap for like the entire application you, uh, like globally. And then there are some like sub-bootstraps. For the purposes of this discussion, really only two are relevant. There's one that's a little bit abstract that I won't get into. So like the app is the higher level one. And then the platform injector is the one that is specific for a request. So that means that every single time a request comes to the server, it is rebootstrapping that particular part. And so you want you do want to only do the minimal in that bootstrap because it's running every time. But this is where you can inject all the services that do have these session-specific stuff in them. And that provides like a great solution. If you look at other server rendering frameworks, they don't have this. They actually, it's a big problem actually, because you don't, they don't have the types of the power of dependency injection that's in Angular 2. They don't have this ability to kind of do this, this bootstrap that I just described. So they have to explicitly pass down that object to everything. And that can be a real pain in the butt. Uh, you have to like include that object in all of your functions, passing it all the way down. And it just gets to be like a lot of cruft you're adding everywhere. So I, I think that's a pretty elegant solution that uh, we'll definitely add some more information about um, for after after the conference. Does that make sense for session state? Yeah, and the way you described it was the same way it works in Rails and just about every other framework I've used too. So it's not unique to Express or anything like that. It's a pretty common way of handling it. Yep. For app container, so the problem there is that when you bootstrap on the client, you are bootstrapping to an app root. So that's typically an element within the body of HTML. 
But on the server, even though that same thing does occur, on the server, you are handling the entire HTML document. You know, it's something that you don't, you aren't necessarily doing on the client side. It just expects that it's there because it comes from the server. But when you are you know running a universal app and you want your Angular Universal to handle everything, it has to handle the actual HTML document on the server as well. And so what we've done there is we've created uh, essentially this special HTML element that is essentially the way of controlling through Angular the entire HTML document. And that's extremely useful for things like when you want to you know, set various values in the head section of the document. On the server side, you know, you do want to set the title, you want to set the meta tags, you know, all that type of stuff from the app. Or if you want to do various coordination among multiple apps, like let's sometimes you might have multiple apps on one given page. I mean, Angular does have that ability to bootstrap multiple apps on the page. But on the server side, you have to be able to have that top level thing that sort of coordinates everything. And so by having this HTML element that's available, that's sort of our solution for handling that on the server. And you can, and I should mention, you can, you don't have to use that. That's like an optional thing. You can still, if you don't want to use that, you can still use the traditional way, which most people actually are, of you have in whatever your server framework is, whether it's Express or .NET or whatever, you can have Express or .NET or anything control the index.html. You can have uh, you can defer to that and, and keep Angular to just that app root. But if you want Angular to take control of everything, you can do that too. Oh, that's interesting. So, what about the user experience? What's the user experience like when using Angular Universal, or, or you know, now and the desired one in the future? Well, first of all, I think till the end of the time, we're going to want to get things faster. Like performance is like a never-ending problem. I, I think every every talk that Brad Green ever gives, he talks about how much faster Angular is with all these different changes, and it keeps getting faster, which is great. But just the reality is that it's it's fast now. Uh, we, we have various things on our, on our board to make it even faster in the future with, with caching, with optimizations, etc. But the one thing that's... I, I didn't talk about gap events. So the, the first problem that we're going to talk about during the talk is... The problem related to a server view is displayed to the user almost immediately, but then the client kicks in sometime later. On slow devices, the amount of time between those two things, the server view being displayed and when the client kicks in, it can be significant. It can be four to eight seconds or you know maybe more, depending on you know where they are and what type of device they have. And so there's this problem of what is that user experience in between those times and during the transition. Outside of performance and just like raw performance, that's probably the biggest UX thing that we focus on. And the solution for that is we built a library called Preboot, which handles a lot of that. And you know, there's still a lot of stuff that we're gonna build in the future along those lines, but today at least the way it works is that there's two primary functions of Preboot. First, it's to record all events that occur on the server view. So, so Preboot is a inline piece of JavaScript that's included with the server view. So once the server view comes in, it doesn't wait, it doesn't have to wait for Angular to bootstrap or anything. It's just there right away. And it's recording events, you know, user clicks, you know, they type in a text box, click on a button, anything like that. And then once 
Angular kicks in, like once once the client is done bootstrapping, Preboot will replay all those events to Angular. So let's say if you have, for example, a click event on a button, the user clicks on that button. Uh, once Angular kicks in, even though Angular wasn't alive at that point, it was the server view, once Angular kicks in, it'll actually process that event. And there, there's other things, you know, smaller things along those lines. You obviously, like when you click a button, uh, you might want to like show a spinner and stuff like that. You can like make little configuration changes or uh, set certain configuration options within Preboot so that it does things like that. But the second major thing outside of the, the event recording and replaying is the buffering. So this is the way in which the transition between the server view and the client view occurs. There is sort of two different approaches that you, you can do when you're talking about this, like switching between the server view and the client view. One approach is that isn't the approach that Angular Universal uses, but other server framework, server side framework uses, is hydration. It's called um, at a general level. It's, it's called hydration, which means that the uh, client side framework essentially reads what's in the server view, what's currently being displayed, and it does some sort of diff. Like it, it sees like, okay, this element is already existing, this one is not, and it diffs out and it only, and it takes, it either adds event handlers to the server view, existing server view, or adds you know new elements that don't exist. There's all that type of stuff. And we tried this. We actually, um, the first version of AU Universal was basically using hydration. The problem with it is that it was significantly slower than re-rendering. And that's due to, the, to some of the Angular internals, which have a lot of optimizations for the initial uh, render time, where it was just so much faster to just render everything again, rather than trying to attach everything. Because if you think about it, you, you, uh, there's a lot of work to go into to like search through the existing DOM, do a diff, and then like make the changes as opposed to just like not even worrying about that and re-render. But you run into the problem of like a um, jank because of the switchover between the, the re-rendered client view and the server view. So that's where the preboot, the second major feature of preboot comes in, which is buffering. The way that works is that preboot will create a offline buffer. You're basically creating a div that is display none. And that's where when Angular 2 bootstraps, it writes everything to that buffer. So essentially, if you were to look within your Chrome Dev Tools, you would see during that four to eight seconds while Angular is uh, bootstrapping, or you know, 48 seconds is a super long time. It's it's much less than that. But during the time that it's bootstrapping, you would basically see two elements. You know, one that's hidden and one that's the, the visible one being the server view, and the hidden one being the client side that's that's running and, and you know doing all of the generation of the client view. Then once it's done and the, and the events are replayed, so it's it's fully up to speed with what the server view is. Then Preboot just basically flips them. It just does a you know flip of the hidden view for the displayed view. And basically, as long as the data has not changed, the user doesn't see any difference. It's just uh, you know, a very smooth transition. You know, obviously, if the data is completely different between what the client is uh, generating and the, what the server did, then you might see some jank. And that is something that, that we're working on with some of the caching stuff that I mentioned. But in most cases, uh, you should. Now, what about uh, installation and running Angular Universal? So that is something that getting into the field of like DX developer experience, it's better um, than when we started off, it was like very raw. 
And we've gotten to the point we've, we've created adapters for many different types of server frameworks. So we like have a specific one for Express, a specific one for HappyJS and other ones where it comes down to basically just implementing one function for the most part. You, know, you basically set your Express, in, for Express, let's say, your rendering engine, just like, just like you, or your template engine, rather, you, just like you would set any other template engine, the Angular Universal is built as a template engine for Express. And then you, you would just pass in your various configuration options to that. So the, the API surface area is super small. It's just, for all intents and purposes, one function. The thing that we're working on more for development, which does need work for sure, is there are tons of different options. It, well, okay, there's three levels. Of this. So one is that the options that you can pass in, there's a lot of different things you can do there. And I think just from our experience of people trying it out, it isn't quite clear always like what they should be passing in to do what. Uh, so we need to improve that uh, both in terms of like better warnings, better documentation, and then documentation in general. Like uh, we, we have not done a good job of documenting everything and having it out there. That is something that we're in the process of working on with Naomi and, and uh, a lot of the other core team members. Are start, we're starting to create these microsites for some of the libraries like Universal that has like all the documentation. So it is something that we're uh, we are working on there. So I, I would say that. Uh, it's uh, for DX. I would give us like a B now. I think that's going to improve greatly over the course of the next couple of months. That's cool. What is the schedule like for Angular Universal? You know, for now and into the foreseeable future. In terms of like release schedule. Yeah, yeah, release schedule. I mean, I don't know if you're doing like typical releases or what, but what's that like? So we do try to get in stuff as, as quickly as possible. We don't have things as formalized as on, in the core team. So the core team has you know, a very defined process of like when and how they group up changes and that type of thing. Patrick and I are kind of rogue. You know, we're, <laughs> we, we, we do follow, we try to follow all, many of the same processes. But when it comes to release schedules, right now at least, we're sort of just kind of getting stuff out there as, as soon as we can get it out there. But just we've already noticed even in the past week as more and more people start to use it, uh, it is becoming evident that we have to get way more formal in terms of you know how we're planning out changes, when we're releasing, when, how we're notifying everyone of changes, you know, formal release notes, all those types of things. Uh, so I, I would say we're in transition right now between sort of our rogue days and you know the more uh, formal um, you know this is a production library, uh, you know, ready for everybody to use. And, and you can, um, this is exactly how we do things. And these are our processes and everything like that. And the, what we'll go towards for that is basically following the same schedule and the same processes that are in the core team right now. But that is something that is also, um, we'll start to formalize within the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, but one thing I, I should mention, because a lot of people were asking us of, okay, when can I use this in production? And for that, what we've been answering and, and uh, what I think will shortly change. So what Patrick has been answering for this is that it's definitely ready to build on, like for sure. There are dozens of people that are working with us on the Angular Universal Slack channel, building real apps using Angular Universal. And they work, they're great, and everything. So, so definitely for building apps, uh, you should use it. For actually launching in production, uh, I would say not today yet, like right today, 
there, there are a couple specific things I want to see in before we uh, get to that point. Uh, specifically, uh, a couple things in core that Patrick is working with uh, Tobias on. And, uh, you know, there's like a half a dozen, I think, still stuff in our queue. So we're close uh, for sure. But I, I would not today. I mean, I'm, I'm building an Angular Universal app for GetHuman, the company I work for. And I mean, we're not ready regardless, but I'm not planning on actually pushing into production until we get, you know, these you know, half a dozen or so changes uh, into the library. So I think gotcha. it's obligatory for us to ask then when it will be ready for people to use. <laughs> and then I think it's obligatory um, for you to pull okay. Brad and kind of be coy about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Actually, I'll, I'll do one better. Whenever Angular Core is ready for production, whenever Brad declares that Angular Core is ready for production, Angular Universal will be ready. Oh, I see. So you're just going nice. to let Brad play coy. Nice. Exactly. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're fired. <laughs> no, that's that's fair. I mean, you know, we're all hoping that all of this stuff kind of lines up and makes our lives a whole lot better. And so it'll it'll be really interesting to see you know, what people do with Angular Universal along with Angular in general and just, you know, have whatever it is that it winds up being capable of. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I, I think that up until now, there have been like kind of hardcore people that have been building stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, a wide range of different type of uh, developers that have been starting to play around with Angular 2. But I mean, if you're building like a real app right now, uh, you got to be kind of high hardcore. And it's going to be exciting once, A, we start seeing apps in production. And I'm not just talking Angular Universal apps. I'm just really excited for any Angular 2 apps. I've gotten a preview of a number of bigger companies that are building on top of Angular 2, some really awesome stuff. And like, I can't wait until those, for example, get in production. But then as that sort of expands, the second thing is like, you know, once it sort of grows out to like everybody and people see, okay, it's definitely here, and, and, and everybody starts, you know, building their Angular 2 apps, migrating their existing Angular 1 apps, and it becomes mainstream. That's going to be really, really exciting. Do you think you're going to have more things kind of shake out that are issues once it starts being used more widely? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I'm not deluded enough to think that we've thought of everything, for sure. I, I do think the way I view it is that if I had to compare where we are relative to, I mean, we keep close um, watch on other server rendering libraries. You know, React, Ember has one now, and we, we know them pretty well. And right now, even not being production ready, there's a couple things that we've built that I feel are better than what is in their solutions, just because of the approach we took and, and the power within Angular 2. The thing that's a minus for us, and is a big minus right now, is obviously not having stuff in production. Because the reality is, it's only when you have something in production, real-world users are using it, when something becomes mature and it really you know, solidifies. Even if like I, we had no issues in GitHub and like I thought everything was clean, I would still assume that once... The first app gets into production, you know, there's going to be, you know, all sorts of different problems we're going to have to overcome. But I, I think we're on the right path. I, I think that, you know, I, I would say, yes, that uh, based off of just the pace of, of where the Angular 
core team is. I, I don't know. I have no inside knowledge or whatever. But it, off the pace, like I, I think we're within months uh, away or closer of the, the release. So you know, within six months, let's say end of, end of year, I would expect us to have reached you know at least the maturity level where I would be much more confident in saying like, okay. This is you know, definitely head and above like everything else. This is the best solution ever. <laughs> I mean, I, I could say that now, but I would just be like kind of, I don't know, a hacker or something like that, <laughs> a homer trying to say. I, I, so I'm just trying to be a realist. But I, I think I, I will truly be able to feel that uh, once I have my own app in production. I, I know that it all works. There's no issues. And we feel on solid ground, which I, I think by the end of this year, we'll basically get there. Awesome. Cool. So, uh, Jeff, is there anything else that we should have gone over that we didn't? One thing I'll mention just in terms of uh, ng-conf, I mean, this goes a little bit beyond my talk. Well, we are going to have a workshop, first of all. So we have the talk where we're going to go over these problems and the patterns, like I mentioned. We're going to have a workshop the second day where we'll try to get everybody getting a basic Angular Universal app running and then uh, you know, go over some of the problems that we talk about within our talk. Uh, but then in addition to that, Patrick and I are going to be around. And one of our goals that, and the thing I talked to Patrick about is we're, we're going to consciously try to find the people that are, you know, really interested in server rendering in Angular Universal, you know, understand their problems and try to help them. Uh, so if you are thinking about using Angular Universal, you know, which in my mind really means if you have a consumer-facing app, so it's something that you built that's publicly available to people on the internet, you should, number one, you should be using Angular Universal. And you know, assuming you are, I want to talk to you. Uh, you know, so definitely, if I don't find you at ng-conf, definitely come out and seek either myself or Patrick out, and we'd love to talk to you. All right. Well, I don't think I have anything else to add. Do you have anything you want to bring up, Joe? Just the Jeff's awesome, and I'm looking forward to his talk. Of course, it'll have already been played, so if you're listening to this podcast, you should get on YouTube and watch it. Yeah, it was super good. We'll just say that right yeah, now. Yeah, this is the best talk of the whole th- It was the best talk this year. I, I know, right? <laughs> and we'll tell all the other speakers that too, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, well, let's go ahead and uh, get to our picks then. Joe, do you have some picks for us? You bet I do. So... I bought the Sphero BB-8 droid quite a few months back. and I'm jealous. It's really cool. I've had a ton of fun with it. My kids have had a ton of fun with it. So I've really enjoyed having it. We're actually going to have Sphero. We've had Sphero come in the past NGConf. We're trying to get him to come again. We've got a few more days to try to work that out. But there's been an update where you can update the software and it'll watch the new Star Wars with you and react to the Star Wars movie. <laughs> no way. Watch the show. Yeah. So... I haven't done that yet, done the update and actually watched it yet because I actually haven't had a chance to watch all of the new, sit down and watch the new show since I bought it on DVD. But I'm going to do it. But I'm, I'm just more excited about the fact that they did this, right? Regardless of how well it actually plays out, what a cool thing to do. So I'm going to pick the Sphero Droid. And then I've also, I've already once this week picked on JavaScript Jabber, this uh, audiobook, but I'm going to pick this again. I read an audiobook recently or been listening to an audiobook. I'm about halfway through it called Black Man in a White Coat. And it's uh, reflections by an African-American medical doctor uh, about race issues in medicine. And it was really interesting. He does a great job presenting it in a relatively non-controversial way. So I highly recommend checking it out if you're interested in this topic at all. Great read. Those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks as well. So before this episode, I actually recorded 
It's the regular recording time for the iFreaks podcast. And uh, we had Scott Hanselman, who's actually been a guest on this podcast, on the show. And we were talking about mobile technology and diabetes. And I didn't realize that Scott is type 1 diabetic. I'm type 2 diabetic. You know, so it was a really interesting conversation. It was also interesting to see, you know, that everybody else who was there on the panel also had some uh, relation to people who were diabetic. But anyway... It was really, really fascinating, and it's kind of inspired me. It's kind of funny how when somebody says something, it seems obvious, but you never really got there yourself. So he got on me about checking my blood sugars. and Anyway, so uh, I'm definitely going to be checking that out, and I guess I'm just going to pick, in general, keeping tabs on your health. It's funny because I was talking to somebody else at MicroConf. That episode will come out on the Freelancer Show within a week or so, and he asked me why. You know, I, he asked me the why for the business. You know, why do I do the podcast? Why do I have, you know, a team of people that help me do all this work? And to be honest, you know, my first thought was, well, because it's fun. But it that wasn't really a why. Like, it wasn't enough. It wasn't a fulfilling thing. And I realized that, and, and I'm going to send an email to this effect to the email list probably before this episode comes out. But I realized that what I really want to do is I want to make an impact on people's lives. Now, if that's, hey, you learned this cool thing on Angular 2 and it saved your company a bunch of money and you were able to keep your job or your customers were able to get more done in their day or something like that, that's cool. If knowing this stuff gets you to the point where you have a better advancement in your career, you're able to contribute better to people who matter to you, then terrific. And if we cover a topic or mention something about health or mental health or, you know, something else where it affects you or, you know, I've heard, I've had several people tell me about this show, JavaScript Jabber and Ruby Rogues in particular, that it inspired them to go try something because we told them they could do it and it turned out they could. And so they got a better job or they got a job, their first coding job, or they went out and they built some app and... So I, I really just hope that there's, you know, there's something, you know, talking about health for a minute, you know, and I've been doing the primal blueprint and uh, I'm going to start checking my blood sugar regularly and things like that. You know, it's, it's stuff that we don't talk about on the show, but it's stuff that matters. And the reason we do this is because we care about people. You know, we care about the people in our lives. We care about the people that we interact with at work. We care about, you know, our families. We care about all of these different things. And ultimately, at least for me, the purpose is, is that these people are people that I can say something that goes into their life and makes a positive difference. So if we've made a difference for you, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is chuck at devchat.tv. And then I'm also just going to pick uh, in general... If there is something that we can put out there that will help you, I put together a survey. It's like four or five questions, and they're, they're just basically that. What can we talk about that will make the biggest difference? How hard is it to find a solution? What kind of a difference would it make for you to have that solution? And I'd really just love to be able to get your feedback on that. So if you go to devchat.tv slash survey, then you can hit that, and uh, hopefully you can tell us what we can do to make a difference for you. And then, like I said before, if you have those stories, then I would definitely love to hear them and love to share them with the other hosts on the shows. So anyway, that was a little longer than I planned on doing. But yeah, that's what I've been working on lately is just kind of getting to the point where I can really focus on making that kind of a difference for people. Jeff, what are your picks? I just have one that's a little bit of a plug, actually. On May the 4th, May the 4th is actually going to be a pretty big day. Uh, so, I mean, it's Star Wars Day, first of all. Uh, it is the beginning of NGConf. Uh, my talk is going to be on 
you know, May the 4th. It's my daughter's birthday. Uh, so a lot of stuff going on. For some, you know, sadistic reason, uh, I agreed for it to also be the launch date of a new product that uh, we have coming out for Get Human. Some stuff outside my control on that on the date or whatever, but uh, basically this um, new service that we've been beta testing for a while uh, is going to go live, which basically is something where Get Human can take over uh, your entire all of your customer service problems. So you never essentially have to deal with a company ever again. Uh, so right now we offer advice. You know, we, we give ways of contacting the company. But this new service would basically be one where you, know, you pay us and we would just do everything. We would fight down your bills. We would get you your rebates you know, if you're locked out of your account. Um, whatever, whatever it happens to be, you don't have to deal with you know, these companies that typically are pretty bad and, and take up a lot of your time. So that's something that has been extremely popular uh, in our beta testing, uh, limited kind of uh, exposure and uh, been growing like pretty, pretty rapidly. So I'm excited for you know, our you know, official launch and that type of thing. And my only uh, worry and hope is that everything doesn't go south as I'm like come, go, about to step on stage. And like, uh, I, I think I'm going to have to just turn off my uh, phone and <laughs> hope for the best. But no, it, it's going to be great. I, I can't wait. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this show up. But thanks for coming, Jeff. We'll hopefully have a link to uh, YouTube or wherever the ng-comp folks post the talks and that way people can go check out what you and patrick have to say and i think on behalf of all of us uh we just really appreciate the appreciate all the work that you and the other members of the angular team and angular universal team put into this stuff because you know in some ways i guess we all get paid to do this work but in other ways you know it is put out there free for us to take advantage of and you know really enjoy and make the most of so just yeah i just want to put that out there i appreciate that chuck thanks a lot all right well uh we'll go ahead and catch you next week hopefully for us uh since for us it's still before ngconf see you at ngconf and if not then we'll see you on the internet bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com forum and sign up today. 